We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, your brothers and sisters in Christ on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, we are continuing that sermon series where we're looking at kind of some of the basics of what it means to be a Christian or um, the, the definition of what it means to be a Christian. And um, the interesting thing about, I think, this series is that there are times when um, how the world would define what we are as believers and as Christians is vastly different than how we would define who we are as Christians. And, and even a step further, there are times when the world may define us in some way, and even at times when we ourselves maybe define ourselves in a way that is slightly different than how our God above and Scripture would define what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we've kind of been walking through some of those basics of, of what it means to be a Christian, to be a, a follower of Jesus, to be one of his disciples. Um, today, our theme is simply depth, um, and we're going to kind of unpack that, unfold that in, in various different ways. But I think as believers, what we want to look at is that uh, um, there is depth to, to who we are, to the questions we ask, but even maybe more importantly, to our God above. And Peter and our lesson today kind of reveal that to us. But I got a question for you here today. So um, who is the most famous, who comes to mind when I say the most famous magician or escape artist? Okay, I heard it. I heard Houdini, someone, I heard David Copperfield too. Um, which, is he still around, David Copperfield? Okay, some of you are like, yeah, he's at Vegas all the time, right? So yeah, I haven't heard, of, I haven't heard about him for a while, but, uh, um, and, he, and David Copperfield is, is kind of phenomenal. But I think if we're talking like um, magician slash escape artist, probably most of you, it's Houdini. Do you know that Houdini lived, he's almost, it was almost 100 years ago that Houdini was around? pretty fat, phenomenal, right? You think of how fast our news cycle kind of goes through and how quickly people kind of come to the front of fame and then disappear into the background. Uh, Houdini was literally 100 years ago, and yet when I talked about the most famous escape artist you have ever known, Houdini is what comes to mind, right? Okay. Um, I think that's pretty common. Uh, where I was a pastoral intern, a vicar, uh, was in, in Nina, Wisconsin, which was basically part of what they call uh, the Fox Valley near Appleton. And Appleton, Wisconsin claims Harry Houdini as their own, that Appleton is his, his hometown. Uh, so they have a plaza called Houdini Plaza. Uh, they have a museum there with all kinds of his artifacts, like uh, um, um, his tricks, his, his locks, uh, some of his, his uh, um, what is it called, the Chinese water torture box that he had to escape from, like all, these, all this kind of paraphernalia from Houdini. It's fascinating, so if you need a last-minute trip uh, for the summer, you can, Appleton, Wisconsin, Harry Houdini, right? So I'm... I'm not getting a cut from any of this. I can't get you a discount. They'll maybe charge you more. Um, but uh, Houdini uh, um, um, thought of Appleton as his hometown of sorts. And, and there's a reason why Houdini and the things that he did, I think, have, um, have persisted uh, for so long, right? 100 years. I think Houdini knew it as well. Now, um, 
some of you maybe know his history a little bit, but in the early years, he did a lot of kind of magic tricks, sleight of hand, that kind of thing, which actually I think is a little more David Copperfield-esque, right? So when we think of magicians, we think of that, right? Sleight of hand, this kind of thing. Um, but I think part of Houdini's uh, um, longevity of why he is he's kind of burned into our collective consciousness was actually probably not the sleight of hand, magician, card tricks type of stuff, but it was actually his escape things. And Houdini knew that as well. Uh, this is one of his quotes. He says, the easiest way to attract a crowd is to let it be known that at a given time and a given place, someone is going to attempt something that in the event of failure will mean sudden death. I know, he's like a master of like presentation, right? You're like, okay. He just kind of cut through it all. He said like, yeah, uh, I'm going to be here at this time and I might die. Let's see who shows up, right? And we'll sell tickets for it, right? So Houdini did that and he was a master at it. Um, and there's lots of reasons why he was so good at it. And some of you maybe that are, are fans of history, uh, Houdini actually was way ahead of his time, like physicality and things like that. So not only did he have incredible sleight of hand, but he was a phenomenal showman. So he understood what entertained. He understood uh, how to keep people engaged. So sleight of hand, all those kind of things, a showman. But uh, what was maybe a little bit underappreciated was Houdini was remarkably physical. Uh, they said that he, he, was, re, he was kind of short, uh, I think 5'5", five, 5'6", five, five, but, he, but he, was, he was, um, had like a really athletic build. So, and he would, he would work out, right? He would train his body to be able to get out of situations that the rest of us wouldn't be able to do. Uh, legend has it that he, can hold, he could hold his breath um, three minutes, four minutes, and beyond, right? So um, this would build this suspense when he was, was expected to get out. When the rest of us were gasping for breath, Houdini was still underneath working, right? And so there's lots of reasons why I think, I think um, he was good at what he did. But in one of his journals, in one of his kind of personal essays, um, he actually revealed a little bit about himself. And Houdini didn't always do this. He almost uh, always was in showman mode. Uh, but in one of these journals, he revealed a little bit uh, of one of his acts that almost went wrong. So uh, it was in July... Uh, July 15th, 1912, uh, in New York. So I think it was in one of the rivers there. And he was performing a trick that is known as the overboard box trick. Can you guess what happens in it? Yeah. They tie him up, put him in a box, and throw him overboard. So yeah, that's it. The overboard box trick. This is a picture of it here. Um, so he would line up, and actually, the state of New York didn't want people dying on their land. So he applied. he applied for a permit to, like, possibly die. And the state of New York said, we're denying your permit to die. So they said, no. So you want to know what Houdini did? He told them, I'm going to be there, show up on the shore. And then he showed up in a boat uh, just offshore because New York couldn't stop him from doing that, right? So um, this was the, the, the over, over the, what was it again? Overboard box trick, right? Um, and that's basically all that they did. They would lock him up. They put him in shackles, right? They'd put him inside this wooden box. They would nail it shut on top. And then you can guess the rest, overboard, right? To the bottom of the river. Now, like I said, 
Houdini was a master of all phases of these things, and so um, he was physical, and he was able to actually remarkably pick almost every lock. They said that he studied um, all of the lock manufacturers. He knew everyone in the world that produced locks, and he knew how to get into each of their locks, right? So he was phenomenally intelligent as well. Um, But in this case, um, it wasn't just that that he could get out of his shackles, because they would nail the whole box shut. Uh, The box actually had a trap door on the side that people couldn't see, okay? So there was a trick to it, right? He was a showman. So they put him in here, nail it all down, the big spectacle, push him over, right? And in this case, uh, on that day, he said that he put a little extra weight in the box. So he had about 200 pounds of lead in the box as well so that it would, it would sink, right, rapidly. So they pushed him over and he said, I'm not sure what happened. I don't know if a boat went by or something disturbed it. But he said, I felt I was banged around in the box more than I normally was. And he said, and I I dropped more rapidly than I was used to. Usually it would be kind of a slow descent. He said, I went down really, really fast. And what happened at the bottom was um, the box came down and landed in the mud on top of the trap door. (laughs) Okay. So um, long story short, he... He survived, but in his memoirs, he's like, it was really close, <laughs> right? He said, I could not get the door open. I couldn't, I couldn't force my way out of it. Uh, eventually, through just sheer physicality, right, he was able to get out, to squirm out. The locks on his wrists were no problem. He pops up above, above the water, and the crowd cheers, none the wiser. In fact, on that day, no one knew that he had almost died. <laughs> he only shared that after the fact. The reason for the story is we are no Houdinis. He had a mix of traits and abilities and, in fact, rigged the game to some degree to be able to escape. And our lesson today and what we're going to look at is something far more important, far greater, far more grave than, than uh, a show that Houdini put on. But it was literally life and death. On that, on that day in New York for Houdini, Little did he know it was life and death. But today for us as Christians, that's what we consider. If we want to define ourselves, if we want to let Scripture define who we are, we, we must be willing to ask and to consider the hardest of questions, which is life and death. Not just what makes my day better on Monday when I head into work or when school starts this week. But what are the answers that Christianity, that Christ gives to the very real looming presence of death. That's what we want to look at today. How do we escape that? What answers does Scripture give us to that that looming threat of death, right? Ultimately, that's what we want to look into. So you're welcome to follow along with me today if you'd like. Uh, A little bit of background, exactly where we're going um, and, and kind of where we're headed uh, some of you are, this is, school is starting up, so I thought I'd just give you some homework right off the bat. Uh, so if you'd like to fill in the blank in your bulletin, you're welcome to do that. You're going to find that on the notes page. Uh, you can kind of fill those in as we go. Uh, this will also kind of serve as our, our, uh, where we're headed in our text and, and our theme this morning as well. So uh, the theme is just going to be depth. We want to look at that, the depth of who we are as believers. So uh, so setting of where our text takes place today, um, um, we gotta, it, it's, 
it is continuing on from actually the text that we read last week, which was Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. So if it feels a little bit abrupt to you, or if you weren't here last week and the text felt a little bit abrupt to you, um, it, it, is, it is immediately after that incredible miracle that we talked about last week, that Jesus fed um, not just 5,000, but probably a better estimate would be 15 to 20,000 people, right? Uh, with five loaves and two small fish. So Jesus performs this miracle, right? He feeds everyone. He literally puts food in their stomach and they're astounded. Um, But what happens almost immediately afterwards is that Jesus knew that that miracle, the the thing that he had done for them was going to result in a certain reaction. uh, And and he knew what that would be. They they wanted to, to crown him right then and there right? Uh, They wanted to make him their revolutionary. They wanted to make him their earthly bread king, right? Right then and there. And so our text takes place immediately after that. He leaves to a solitary place in prayer, right? He sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee uh, in order to, in a sense, escape some of the the clamor of the crowd that, that had just been astounded. Now, they go across uh, the Sea of Galilee, and some of you know this, maybe some of you don't. Uh, Sea of Galilee is about 12 miles north-south and about six miles wide. So when we say Sea of Galilee, we could say Lake of Galilee, right? So, um, but it, it, was, it's, it was and it is a remarkably good uh, lake slash sea for fishing. So the industry around it was phenomenal. They say that there's uh, like 25 to 30 different species of fish in that singular lake. So you can understand why many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And so that's where this is taking place. So Jesus' disciples get in a boat, something that they, they, they knew um, everything about, right? They had lived their lives on the Sea of Galilee. They knew everything about boats and they head off across the Sea of Galilee. It was at that point that they got into trouble. Now, the Sea of Galilee is about four to 500 feet below sea level, okay? So four to 500 feet below sea level, so pretty low. If you take a look here, um, that snow-capped mountain there, that is Mount Hermon, okay? So Mount Hermon is about 9,000 to 9,500 feet above sea level. Okay? So if we're sitting here in Colorado and we have beautiful mountains out our back, if, if you think uh, basically the height of Nederland is probably, we're probably at about 9,000 feet above sea level, right around in Nederland, right? So if you came from Nederland and straight down, not to Firestone, we're at what, 4,500 feet above sea level? But go from Nederland straight down to four to 500 feet below sea level, that's what we're looking at right there. Now, why do I say that? Because the winds and the topography and the, the, the weather systems that the Sea of Galilee would produce were at times remarkably violent um, because you would be coming from 9,000 feet above sea level all the way down and that, that cold air would rush down into the Sea of Galilee where it was, it was warm and it was moist and it would produce storms, um, remarkably violent storms at times. So in our text, that's what we're looking at. But here's this this connection. This is not the first time that these disciples had ever been on the Sea of Galilee. This is not the first time the disciples had ever been in a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee. And yet, from these men, these seasoned sailors, we we see abject fear, fear for their life that they may die. Okay. Okay. 
So let's jump into our text. I'm going to read for you uh, verses 25 through 27. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, uh, you can maybe understand their fear to some degree. Our text tells us that, that, um, that it, by this point, we estimate the disciples had probably been rowing against the storm or to keep themselves upright for as long as nine hours straight, okay? So put yourself in that position. You've used every ability that you have as a sailor on the Sea of Galilee. You've been rowing and trying to keep yourself upright for nine hours straight. And then all of a sudden, coming across the Sea of Galilee, across the lake, you see Jesus, I think we can understand their reaction to some degree, right? They cry out, it's a ghost. They, like, their, their minds could not conceive what they were looking at as Jesus came across them. In their weakness, they could not understand what they saw as he came toward them. Now, keep in mind, this is in the immediate aftermath of Jesus having fed 15,000 people, right? Jesus had performed miracles before. Jesus had done astounding things in the presence of the disciples and yet on this day, in their weakness, it was total fear. It was not joy. It was not comfort seeing Jesus coming across the lake. It was just fear, right? And I think we can understand that on some level, can't we? Those disciples understood what it meant to, to be at the mercy of something that was bigger than themselves. In this instance, it was physical. It was a storm on the Sea of Galilee. But I think life has a way of teaching each and every one of us that at some point or another. There are moments in our lives, and I think this is essential for us as believers. If we want to understand what it means to be a Christian, there are times in our lives when we must admit that we are completely helpless and admit our weakness. The disciples were forced into it, but my guess is you have been at times as well. And this is maybe a little bit of an issue with us culturally. We like to understand almost everything. We like to even maybe do that within the pages of Scripture. And we want to have everything wrapped up in a nice, neat little box according to our reason. And we're able to do that maybe even for spans of time within our lives, right? Where, where the plans that we have in our minds, the things that we expect to happen, the things we want to happen, those generally are kind of laying out. We say, oh, maybe there's a little bit of course correction here or there, but nothing tragic, nothing, nothing uh, astounding, nothing that knocks us off the rails. We're basically headed down the road that we envisioned up for ourselves uh, for years prior, right? And, and I think we can get away with that for a while. But again, life has a way of revealing our weakness and our need for a savior, right? When your job doesn't continue down the path that you expect, maybe when it's abruptly taken from you, maybe it's the loss of health, chronic illness, disease, when our bodies that are supposed to be, that are supposed to work and we're supposed to be, even on some level, be able to abuse, right, and to use, start to break down and not act in the ways that we expect them to act, right? 
Maybe it's at the loss of a loved one, a spouse, a parent, maybe a child. I think for each one of us, there are moments in our lives where we must admit we don't have everything wrapped up. That there are moments in our lives where we feel nothing more than abject fear and terror and helplessness. Sometimes within trauma circles, they call that a loss of agency. Okay? A loss of agency. Moments in our lives where you are not in control. Because of pain, because of struggle, because of loss, because the circumstances of your life are not being dictated by you, but by other people and the things around you. It's terrifying. You know, they estimate that 60-70% of us have experienced trauma to the level of loss of agency. Where you have, you have no choice but to just sit there. I think on some level that's what these disciples are feeling. A total loss of agency. Fear, right? Fear even in the face of Jesus as he was coming to them across that lake. So if you felt that way, you're not alone. Your disciples did as well. But here's the good news. Jesus doesn't leave us in that. Our first fill in the blank there. We want to have depth as believers. We need to see our weakness and our need. Right? And it's okay to recognize that and even verbalize that with the people we love. Right? Okay. Read for your next few verses, 28 through 31. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. It's kind of a fascinating interaction between Jesus and Peter. And if you know a little bit about Peter's life, Peter was always kind of hot or cold. He was either cutting off people's ear to, to defend Jesus or he was completely disowning him, right, um, in his hour of need. And so um, Peter, again, hot and cold. And so he sees Jesus and he says, Jesus, I, I'm gonna, I want to come to you, right? And Jesus says, okay. And it's actually, the, our text is remarkably stark. Jesus doesn't say anything other than come. He doesn't say how to do it. He doesn't say what will happen, nothing. He just says, Okay, come. And, and Peter did. And what's kind of amazing, and maybe what we pass over just for a little bit, is that Peter actually walks on water, doesn't he? Right? He simply answered the call of Christ, and it was amazing what he was able to do. And yet, real quickly, fears come creeping in, right? His own weaknesses, his own fear, um, the wind and the waves and all the surrounding circumstances and he starts to sink. I think if we can understand or empathize with those disciples' loss of agency, we can maybe even more so empathize with Peter. <laughs> Moments where we're out the, out the gate real well and wonderfully, but then when fears and anxiety and worry and all of those things creep in. Uh, you're not alone in that regard. 
Peter and the disciples are with us. But the question we get to ask of ourselves here this morning is what, what answer is there for us as believers, as Christians, when those fears creep in? Because to be honest, uh, we're not unique in that regard. Both believer and unbeliever alike suffer and struggle and endure loss and pain and loss of jobs and chronic illness and all those things. Everyone this side of heaven endures those things. And so on that level, we actually aren't unique, are we? Everyone suffers those things. The question we get to ask and what we want to ask when we talk about defining ourselves as Christian is what answers does our God above actually give us when we are in the midst of that suffering, that pain, that worry, and that anxiety? And, and that's where the answers are vastly different for us as a believer versus what the world will put in front of you. But it's amazing how easily that starts to creep into our own thinking. When pain and struggle come, what are our answers? Well, I just got to double down. I've got to work harder, right? I've got to figure out my way around this obstacle. I've got to uh, um, just double, double down on my, maybe my career or, or the job that I'm doing. Maybe I've got to go get some counseling. Like, um, we, we almost immediately look to the things that we have at hand or that the world will offer to us as a solution to that. And yet, here's the secret, not so secret. All of the answers that we get this side of heaven won't save us, right? All the, the things that you would label as blessings in your life, sooner or later, they will drown you, <laughs> okay? And here's what I mean by that. If you grab a hold of them as your life raft, if you expect any of the things this side of heaven to keep you afloat, not just here, but into eternity, sooner or later, they will take you down. As I mentioned, I was a lifeguard, and one of the very first rules that they give you or the training they give you as a lifeguard is if you, were, if, if, um, you have to jump into the water to save someone, and that's usually like step four or five, right? Uh, if you have to do that and you approach someone that is floundering uh, and, and, and is on the verge of maybe going under, you've got to do so remarkably carefully. Because what will a, a desperate, drowning person do to a lifeguard? Drown, yeah, you'll both drown, right? I think there's some truth to that for us. If we grab a hold of, if we expect, if we expect our career, if we expect... Um, the success of our children, if we expect the size of our bank account, if we expect uh, um, the, the enjoyment of pleasure, if we expect simply ignoring that we are slightly, slowly drowning and we just aren't going to pay attention to it, sooner or later, every single one of those will take us down because they're actually not made to keep you afloat. Not forever, not spiritually, right? And we can label them all as blessings, but they're not made to, to hold your full weight. There is only one person that is, and it's the same hand that was reached out to Peter as he was drowning, and he said, Lord, save me. It's a hand of grace. It's the hand of Christ. It's the hand of a Savior who gave his life on a cross to answer the most important question that we must ask of ourselves, Right? Why am I here and what is next and what has been done about it? Christ's cross, his death, and his resurrection have given you an answer, a solid answer. Uh, the, the, the hand of grace reaching down, grabbing you by your hand, maybe by the scruff of your neck, 
and lifting you out of that water so that you need never doubt that your sins are forgiven. Not because of, of how well you're able to tread water or not. <laughs> not because of, of, of all of the things and baggage that you have on your shoulders or you're trying to hold on to. But because of his love for you. Right? That's what the hand of grace does. Christ reaches down to us into your heart's and assures you time and time again, your worth is not based on what you do, the size of your bank account, the people you have in your life, or anything. In fact, all of that could be stripped away and you know what you never lose, forgiveness, and your Lord and Savior above. And so I am not so naive to think that there aren't times when you feel, and maybe it is this morning on Sunday, I'm not so naive to think that there aren't times when you feel as though the water is right there or maybe you're bobbing up and down, right? Truth is, each and every one of us, I think, get to that point. But it's also at that point where we look to that hand of grace of Christ, our Lord and Savior, and he reaches down and he grabs a hold of us and he grabs a hold of our heart, says you are loved, you are forgiven, and your eternal life is secure. Our next point. We want to understand what it means to be a Christian, right? We need to see our weakness and need, but also understand that we are hand, held by the hand of grace. Your Lord and Savior will not let go and will not let you go under, right? And what does that mean for us, our daily living? That's where we'll go to our last couple verses here, verses 32 and 33. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Okay. It's kind of an amazing reaction. Um, the, the reaction to salvation, to being saved, was worship, was thanking their Lord and God above. But we can extrapolate even beyond that. What did these disciples, what did those early Christians, what did every Christian before us do when they knew that the hand of grace had grabbed them and saved them from drowning, from spiritual death, they worshiped and they shared and they reached out a hand to those who were also drowning. And I think that's what our takeaway is here this morning as well. Not only has that hand of grace lifted you from eternal death, then we have the opportunity to be that hand for those who are in the very same position, those who are sick, those who are suffering, those who, that, are, that are vainly grasping onto the things of this world that will not keep them afloat, trying to feed and fill the God-shaped holes in their heart. We have the opportunity as believers to reach out our hand to offer them a lifeline, to offer them solid ground, to offer them the hand of grace of our God above. What does it look like? It's as varied as every single one of you. And I guarantee you will not need to look very hard to find it. We'll do a little bit of chit-chat after service today, right? A little bit of small talk. Be careful the questions that you ask of one another. Okay? I say that in the sense that if you ask questions that truly care about the people that you're talking to, if you ask open-ended questions, if you actually listen, 
you will find remarkable amounts of pain, sorrow, and hurt. And not just amongst us as members here at CVL, but in the world around you. If you actually ask and listen to your neighbors, your coworkers, uh, the people you interact with at school, you will find remarkable amounts of pain, sorrow, and loss, and very few answers to why those exist or, or answers to what is next. And that's where you have the opportunity to offer that hand of grace in Christ. To remind them that they, and to share with them that they are loved, right? That, that the things of this world will not keep them afloat, but they have a Savior who entered our world, walked through death and to eternal life on their behalf. So, here's my prayer for you, for us. As we leave these walls, look for those opportunities. I don't know what they'll look like. They might be painful, right? And it might be heavy, but we have a real distinct opportunity to put a loving arm around people that are literally drowning and suffering. We have a beautiful opportunity to extend the hand of grace that comes from nowhere else, nothing this side of heaven, other than Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Amen.